Hey, Consumed Listener, this is your host, Jamie Lewis. Before I start this episode, can I ask you a little favor? Will you please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and or review Consumed? It helps other like-minded people find the podcast and it gives love to the folks who sponsor it. And listen, if you don't have anything nice to say, well, just imagine me channeling your mother here, okay? Okay, here's the episode and thank you. It's Consumed, the conversational food and wine podcast covering the flavor of California's Central Coast and beyond. This season, I'm covering lots of different eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, including a mushroom expert, the team behind San Luis Obispo County's first Michelin star, a family of winemakers, an outspoken wine and food critic, a culinary-obsessed high school student, local food activists, pupusa enthusiasts, state historians, and more. Hungry? Thirsty? Let's get consumed. When the La Conchita mudslides occurred in 2005, south of Santa Barbara, California, the destruction and cleanup closed the 101 freeway, prohibiting freight trucks from transporting goods between California's central and south coast. Despite the fact that Santa Barbara County grows and packs a huge percentage of the state and nation's produce, Santa Barbara's grocery store shelves were emptying after the mudslides. Why? Dr. David Cleveland and his students at the University of California at Santa Barbara set about to answer that question. They discovered that 99% of what Santa Barbara County grows, it ships away. And of the produce that Santa Barbara County residents eat, 5% of it is produced locally. That means, first of all, that Santa Barbara is feeding just about everyone but itself, and second of all, that a good amount of what gets shipped out comes back via warehouses in Northern and Southern California, among other places. David saw this as just one signal of what's broken in the American food system. But as he continued his line of thinking, other interesting discoveries were made too, including data about greenhouse gas emissions and locavorism that earned David and his team plenty of hateful comments on Huffington Post, and not from the people you might expect. David has been featured on Freakonomics Radio and in a story by Barry Estabrook from The Atlantic Magazine, who coined the term the Santa Barbara Syndrome, referring to the 99% out, 1% in phenomenon. I'm so stoked I got to chat with him too. Here's David Cleveland. So you were asking just a minute ago how I found out about you. And I found out about you because I have a an abiding interest in the city of Santa Maria, California. And uh, I grew up just north of there, and that's where we went shopping for food because um, there was no grocery store in Napomo at the time. So we would Santa Maria was in our backyard. And uh, there's, of course, Santa Maria-style barbecue. It's one of the remaining foodways, like a real you know, codified foodway of California. And as I got deeper into research on that, I've done a couple stories on it, but I actually applied for um, a fellowship with Michael Pollan's 11th Hour Food Journalism Fellowship. And it didn't get in, but my interest was in Santa Maria. And as I got deeper and deeper into Santa Maria, which is the largest city I think between Monterey and Ventura, it's Mm -hmm. larger than Santa Barbara, which is the county seat. Um, Santa Maria has all these very 
interesting competing forces on it between Vandenberg Air Force Base, the mall, believe it or not. The mall is like this specter, you know. Um, the high immigrant uh, population and then the agriculture. And so I was looking at agriculture and I wanted to see how much food leaves Santa Barbara County and how much of the fresh food that's here, because we're like the you know fruit bowl of America, how much of it that's here is consumed here. So this has been a huge <laughs> part of your research. Um, can you tell me a little bit about maybe, I guess, the, the thing that's come to define you um, in terms of your research? Well, my research has always involved food in one way or another. And um, for when I first came to UCSB, I was pretty much focused on um, crop genetic resources, plant breeding, um, specifically in, in Mexico and in, in the southwestern United States. And the longer I was in Santa Barbara, I kind of figured, well, I should look at Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah, right. And I started, um, I have yearly uh, seminars with, with students in which we, a uh, small number of students in which we take on a research question and, and um, they get involved in the research and uh, co-author publications that come out of it. And um, one of the things that, that we noticed was the intense interest in local food. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> So our first, uh, but no one seemed to know exactly, you know, as you said, well, this is an interesting question because we did know that Santa Barbara County is a, is a huge producer of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. It's the main, uh, the main crops, not, not grain or dairy or anything. So um, that was our first question. And as we began to do the research on that and began to realize uh, what a small proportion of of the food that we eat in the county was actually local. Then we began to focus on well, well, what would be the effects if we did completely localize the the food system for fruits and vegetables? And that, and that, um, that became that research paper that we published in 2011, which, mm-hmm. which um, I presented some results uh, at a. At a big uh, um, conference on campus because I was the sustainability champion for that year, and then, and then I did something for Slow Food, uh, their national conference that was here in Santa Barbara, and and it was covered by some national press people, and that's kind of got into became the Santa Barbara syndrome. Yes, <laughs> um, but of course that is not just the Santa Barbara syndrome; it's the food system syndrome where we have especially in the industrialized countries where we have much of the food that's grown is enters into this globalized uh, market and gets shipped all over the place um, in ways that make sense in terms of people who are making profit, but don't make too much sense in many other ways. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of the food that we eat uh, is not local. In fact, mo- most of the food we eat is not fresh. As, mm. as we know, most of the food we eat is, is highly processed. Um, so, um, what was your question? <laughs> well, so I, I guess I'm trying to, away. it's okay. I'm trying to lead you to where, where I found you was through okay. this concept of Santa Barbara syndrome. So the Santa Barbara, can I tell you what I think the Santa Barbara sure. syndrome is? <laughs> and was that coined by you? 
No, it was uh, the guy from the Atlantic. Uh, Estabrook, Barry yeah, Estabrook. Barry Estabrook. Okay. So what I understand the Santa Barbara syndrome to be is that 99% of Santa Barbara County produce that's grown here is shipped away, mm-hmm. sent away. 1% stays, and, and that's what's for Santa Barbara Countyans to consume. And that's about 5% of what we consume. So that 1% that's not shipped out is 5% of what we eat in Santa Barbara County. In total, okay. And which is, you know, which is what, uh, as I told you, what most people focused on and, you know, the the reporters focused on was was this incredible disparity between what's right there Mm -hmm. and why aren't we eating that? Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that's what you mean by localized. Yeah, that's what we mean by, we did find some cases, for example, not many, but there were, I think it was one of the chain grocery stores, Safeway, or one of those, and we, my students and I, we we interviewed or we had data. For example, um, um, Sam Edelman from the Santa Barbara County's uh, Certified Farmers Markets shared his data with us, so yeah. we knew he he, he let us. Uh, have the data on how much was actually sold at the farmers markets. Yeah. UCSB Dining shared all their data because they're a large food purchaser on mm-hmm. how much was from Santa Barbara County. We interviewed uh, you pick the blueberry. You you know we we we, Love it. we scoured yeah. Santa Barbara. We went to places in Santa Maria, other small grocery stores, yeah. um, and we talked to managers and tried to actually find out what are the numbers here. And mm-hmm. one of the as I said, one of the chain grocery stores said, oh, yeah, we, we sell local avocados and lemons or something yes, like that. Right. We said, that's great. And then and then um, we that was kind of an anomaly because none of the other stores, and we said, well, we need to check that again. So we went back to talk to this produce manager, and it turns out that, yes, the some of the avocados and lemons they sell were grown in Santa Barbara County, but they were first shipped to a distribution center. I think it was in Reno or someplace. Sure. And then shipped back to the store. So we didn't consider that local because... Well, no. It's, it's a small... It was a very small amount. And, it, it you know, it, it was shipped out and shipped in in our... Anyway, so... Well, I mean, I suppose it does benefit that local farmer. That In that way, it's local. But I also wonder about... Are they getting paid their paid their fair amount? Yeah. Um, when all of this cost is being put yeah, into I, shipping it away and bringing it back, storing and, it someplace right? and then shipping it back, and, and yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And 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 farmers, you know, when I talk to farmers about this, um, and subsequent research, and they said, oh yeah, we mean they didn't know exactly, but they said, yeah, we know this happens because you know, like when when the mudslides close uh, one hundred one and yeah. the train and 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 we can't get some of the stuff we grow out. We went to the local uh, grocery stores, the chain stores, and said, "Look, we've got this. We've got broccoli. We've got lemons. We've got but they couldn't lettuce. accept it, could they? And they said, "No, we can't buy it from you. It's not our. We just can't do that. It's not feasible for us with our corporate management. We can't do it. So the food was spoiling here because mm-hmm. they couldn't." And people were going to the stores and they were empty. And so there's this, the economic system, huge market failure. There's something wrong there. Yes, for yeah. sure. Um, and there's a term for that called local washing, right? Well, local washing, yeah. It's local washing is what, is, what the, is what places like um, 
you know, Walmart and the chain grocery, they're all, as you know, it's all about local and fresh mm-hmm. and supporting farmers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but what, what the problem is, and this is one of the main, this is one of the main points of our, of our subsequent, you know, follow-up to that article, was that we need to keep asking questions because you can't just accept at face value people's statements about what they're doing. You need to know, you know, it's like we just went through this COP26 disaster where all these diplomats and, you know, national negotiators are there and and making all these grand statements, but with very little detail about how they were actually going to to do what they said they were going to do, which doesn't lend, lend much credibility. And so when you look on, as we did, when you look on, for subsequent research, look on the websites of these companies. They make all these grand statements about local food and supporting local mm-hmm. farmers and supporting um, uh, local communities. But yet, when you try to find out the numbers of, well, how many, what, when, mm-hmm. not there. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what I call local washing. It's, yes. it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throwing yeah. the term around. Yeah, throwing the term around, liberally. pretending that you're being local, but really, you know not doing it. Right. Well, so when I asked you to be on the podcast, you said, I'm interested, but I want you to read several report or (laughs) several, uh, papers, papers that you had written to be sure that I really did (laughs) want you on. And I love that you said that, um, because, well, you tell me, why did you ask (laughs) me that? Well, because, um, (laughs) well, (laughs) because, Initially, when we published the paper, um, the Huffington posted an article about it, and um, it got hundreds of comments to that article uh, by one of their reporters. And almost all of the comments, we read all of them, my students and I read all of them, and almost all of them were upset because the because the second part of our of our research the first part was how much food how much how much of the fruits and vegetables that we eat in Santa Barbara are grown in, in Santa Barbara County how much are that are grown are exported mm-hmm. when you mentioned the numbers that we found but the second part of our research as i said was well what if we were completely local and so we we modeled what it would be like if all the fruits and vegetables grown here are eaten here were grown here yeah and we and and what effect that would have on 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 the climate and what we found was it was minuscule because transportation actually um uh in contradiction to what a lot of people think transportation in our food industry produces very little of the greenhouse gas emissions yeah um most of the greenhouse gas emissions from our food system come from uh, production Mm-hmm. And and so um, we, you know, that was the second point of our article. We said, well, localization, you can't assume that localization is a good thing for the climate. And as I said, almost all of the hundreds of commentators condemned us. And they, some people said, you must be working for Monsanto or, you know, all, <laughs> oh, all, all these, all, all these uh, aspersions made about our, our motives for doing this. Um, and, and so we... And on the other hand, the, the commentators were for, they were for better food. 
they they were for food that was good for our bodies, food that was good for the climate, food that was good mm -hmm. for the environment, for biodiversity, for social justice, for farm workers, for communities. And they conflated that with local food. They thought, well, local food will do all this stuff. So if you're saying that local food isn't doing this, you're under, regardless of the data that we had that showed this, mm -hmm. it was just like that was, uh, that was really um, being uh, traitorous to the cause of better food. Yeah. Right. And so we, we pointed out to them that local food, or we thought we pointed out to them <laughs> in our response to that. Uh, Huff, Huff, we, we did an article in the Huffington Post to kind of respond to those um, commentators. And we, we pointed out that, that local food can contribute to all these things. But the only thing it, it's necessary for is for reducing the miles between harvest and eating. Mm -hmm. and obviously, if you're going to do that, you have to have local food. Yeah. But, that's, but it's not necessary, and it's certainly not sufficient for all these other goals. Yeah. You can have local food that is produced by farm workers who are treated miserably. Mm -hmm. You can have local food that is... As, as we know, like in northern, in northern Santa Barbara County, these large industrial ag operations, yeah. um, they're producing, using a suite of chemicals, mm -hmm. they're, they're um, abusing the soil, mm -hmm. they store it in, in, in refrigerated units, and well, the, we could take the food from those refrigeration units that's grown in these giant chemical fields, and we could eat it, and it'd be local food. Right. But, you know... So, so that, so I just, we we tried to point out that we have to keep asking questions. Yes, local food certainly it can be really good and can help in all these other ways, but not necessarily so. So we have to keep asking. Yeah. And the problem is, if people say our goal is local food and don't keep asking those questions, then they're not really reaching their goals. Right. And not, and it sounds to me like as somebody who really did believe. The research, or not the research, but believed the anecdotal idea mm -hmm. that a, a, that greenhouse gas emissions would be reduced or reduced or like a, you know it'd be restricted, I guess, limited mm -hmm. if we did eat the food that was closest to us. Um, it just, as we were saying before we started rolling, people sometimes get very latched onto an idea. Mm -hmm. And are incapable of breaking with that idea, even when the research and the science is there. I mean, I, gosh, what I'm saying right now We're is pretty biased. much indicative of biased. everything. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm wondering about you. I think it takes a very special person to go into research like that. Perhaps I'm just assuming you had that mindset as well, and to have it borne out differently. What is that like as a researcher going in with, like, you know, the scientific method, thinking that this is your, this is your hypothesis and then finding out that it's not yeah, correct. It was um certainly that was our you know, I it was a new field for me. As I said, I've been mostly researching other things. I've working in Africa and Mexico and and looking at um different issues. And so I, I was pretty new to this whole thing of local food and its impacts and and I did, as you say, I did kind of assume that what we would find well, it wasn't the extreme that we did. I, I was shocked. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and I also was just getting into the into the research on on um, greenhouse gas emissions in the food system, and and I was again shocked that transportation accounted for so such a small amount. Yeah, and um, but. But you know, we of course all research has to make assumptions. One of our assumptions in the, in our model was that the low when when we did our our scenario where all food was local to see what effect it would had it would have. Um, we assumed that the local food would be transported in um, from smaller farms uh, mm-hmm. in half ton pickup trucks, mm-hmm. which isn't very efficient, mm-hmm. um, and. Actually, we, we we estimated that all the food, all the fruits and vegetables consumed in Santa Barbara could be grown on existing farms less than, I think it was, two hundred acres, three hundred small, mm. relatively small, yeah. small farms. Yeah. Um, and so we just assumed each farmer would be doing that. But but then um, we we did a, a subsequent research on local food hub. Um, that was created here by a couple of young uh, people who had been working in farmers markets, and you know that's that's a way in which uh, local food can be more uh, climate friendly by yeah. by having these efficient food hubs where where the total miles per each um, pound of food is reduced because you're you're driving you know thirty. CSA boxes around. Yeah. You're driving ten deliveries to ten stores on a route. So, right. so there are ways, of course, that that can be done. Um, but just assuming that because it's local, I mean, local can be done in many different ways. Yes, right. I want to take a minute to shout out to a couple of good friends of this podcast. Consumed is sponsored by Midstate Containers Cargo Storage Containers and Refrigerated Shipping Containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Midstate containers could change your life, but the truth is, many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Midstate for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods, for private collections, and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Midstate containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root sellers. My guest from season 10, Krista Flieger from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her Midstate container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a Midstate container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Life magazine also sponsors the Consumed podcast. Slow Life looks at what's going on in San Luis Obispo, including the arts, real estate, business, and the people impacting culture here. For the magazine, I just wrapped up my food column on crepes, which you may know as a French street food, but did you know that every February 2nd is the day of the crepe? In France on that holiday, people try to flip a crepe in the pan with their non-dominant hand, and if they do it, they're guaranteed a year of prosperity. See? You can learn so much from Slow Life Magazine. Get your copy at slowlifemagazine.com. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into this line of work. Where you, I think that the fact that you come from a different... Maybe not. A, you come from a different angle on this subject, and you did not intend to talk about sustainability in the food economy. 
makes you actually a really good person to have a different pair of eyes looking at it. Where did you come from before this? Um, well, I grew up, I grew up on a farm in upstate New York. And so mm-hmm. I've always, um, one of the things that I experienced there was the, you know, just farming, which is of course always hard work <laughs> everywhere. Um, but also, I saw um, the vanishing of, of family farms. Um, you know, as I, as I, my family moved away from the farm when I was young, and we lived in a suburb nearby. And and as we would drive back and forth between our home and the farm um, where I was born, um, every t- almost every time you would see another farm gone. Mm-hmm people had left they'd sold the land or you know farms were getting bigger consolidating and um so i saw this i I saw this real change in the landscape of our food system um in upstate new york and and i've always you know why did this happen what what is it that caught i mean why did these people leave what what forces larger than them um made their choices uh their best choice to leave mm-hmm. in, 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 later, uh, when I, when I lived in, in, uh, Northeast Ghana for a year and a half doing my fieldwork research with farmers there for my dissertation, it was a similar kind of experience where the farmers that I lived with were, were, Mostly uh, just using hand tools, mm-hmm. you know, short-handled hose, um, and the and to, to process the grain, uh, flails, you know, wooden flails. The the women would thresh the sorghum, mill it um, with these flails, and grind it on like a mano matate kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I mean, very very um, basic technology. And these people worked hard, and they were really smart because. They could make a living um, under circumstances that were very difficult. The climate was variable; mm-hmm. uh, everything was rain-fed, no irrigation, mm-hmm. uh, and they had to understand very well how how plants and soils and climate interacted. And 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 yet they they often were hungry. The both the years I was there were what the, were were what they. Um, what the local uh, people called famine years, and they actually had for the last, I think it was a hundred years that I documented, there had been like six famines that were severe enough to have their own names. Oh. And so, the, when I was there, it was one of these, and it was excruciatingly painful uh, to be there. You, you know, I would buy food, and the, the funny thing, there's food in the market. But people, can't, there's no way they can buy it. So it's like, yeah. here's the here's the need, there's the food, but there's no connection and a lot of waste. I would assume and, then too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, this was food that was brought in from other parts of, of of Ghana, and you know, but the local farmers had no way to get it. You know, some of the bureaucrats in town could buy it, but mm-hmm. but the farmers could. anyway. So I would buy some of that and take to the to the families that I knew best in the village, but it was very difficult. And I, and I would lie awake at night and think, well, why is this happening? Why can't, why can't people who work hard or smart, um, know what they're doing? Why are they, 
why are they suffering? And, and then I would, and then the more I was there, and, and then subsequently, you realize that they, they are in this matrix of global system from, from the Germans and the British who came and invaded them and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and enslaved them actually locally, forced them to do labor for them, and the way the economy was changed, and, and so many different things beyond their control. And, and so we're, we're all in that position. We're all in that position where we are navigating a food landscape, uh, the design of which is so much beyond our control. Yeah. And so I think, to me, the, the, the motivating factor, as you ask, well, why did I get into this, is how, how do we take control back to the, from that? How do, how do the, the people like you and me and people who are eating, people who are growing food, um, on a, you know, when they're in small farms or gardens, how do they um, take back some control of this landscape that they have to navigate so they're not just victims of machinations or forces at higher levels and that they can somehow, you know, be part of that? Yeah. Have you come up with anything? Well, I no, I mean, yeah, I have this, I have this, I have this pill. <laughs> I was hoping. I was now, hoping if we all just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, but you have more experience than anybody probably listening, and certainly more than me. You know, do you have more questions now than answers, or do you have ideas? I have ideas, and I, um, I don't know how much might get into this, but mm. but I think that people. Um, you know, it all comes down. I mean, why? Wh- the, I'm talking about a landscape. You know, and and as we now know, our our, our climate is the result of human action, mm-hmm. um, as well as our you know social institutions and so on. Our our climate, our our uh, biodiversity we have available, uh, for example, for our to develop new crops, and so it's all heavily heavily influenced by human actions and so you have to ask yourself what is it about human nature that does this that that allows this this um these uh, food landscapes to be uh developed in such a what we would say you know i'm here i'm making assumptions about what you think a good food system is Mm -hmm. but i mean and uh what we would say would be a, a, a food landscape that would actually encourage social justice, mm-hmm. encourage community strength, can encourage environmental um, sustainability. What kind of a landscape could we create to, that would do this? And how and what is the role of human nature? And and I, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, this is a huge question. It is, and as you say it, I'm thinking like not just managing, but like abundant thriving. Yes, yeah. Not just managing and getting by, but actually like investing and in putting into not the problem, but like the system. How do you pour into the system rather than just take as much as you can without it exactly, being affected. Exactly, exactly. And that is, and you know, the way I understand it, and, and, and Robert Sapolsky, who's a neuroscientist and primatologist at Stanford, is um, he's very funny. He's also, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's also written a book called Behave, um, which is about this this exact issue. Why do humans behave? What, what is it that determines that humans can act in such a horrible, 
horrible way to each other and to, the, and to their environments. And yet humans can act in such a compassionate, loving, mm-hmm. supportive way to other humans and to their environments. What is it that, that, that determines which direction human potential will take? And, and, you know, we've had different times of history, different places in the world where these things have dominated. Right now, unfortunately, uh, especially in the last 40 years since the Th- Thatcher-Reagan mm-hmm. um, uh, era, or whatever you want to call it, um, we've, we've, we've had a shift toward more of the what I would call the more negative, the more individualistic, selfish, mm-hmm. um, materialistic side of human nature. And, and you see that everywhere. I mean, right, one of the projects I'm working on, right on, on now is at, uh, at the University of California. We have a healthy beverage initiative, which is the goals of which are to try to um, reduce sugar-sweetened beverage consumption because it's been well, well-documented, included by many UC scientists, that, that excess consumption of added sugar is driving this, this huge pandemic of, of um, non-communicable diseases, mm-hmm. uh, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, liver disease, dental disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it trickles into mental health. And exactly, in yeah. mental health, and because all these things are all related. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, one would think that a major public university whose mandate is to serve the public good, like the University of California, mm-hmm. it would not be an issue of whether they would be having contracts with Coca-Cola and Pepsi, which are two of the most nefarious yes. <laughs> food organizations so in the world. So yeah. powerful. And yet, we... Nine of the ten UC campuses have contracts with either Coca-Cola or Pepsi. And these contracts are pouring rights contracts. They're revenue-generating contracts so that the the beverage companies pay the university a a premium to use their logo. And and the university is is, um, obligated under these contracts to promote these. And I'm thinking, why is this happening? Right. It's so, it's so, uh, it's so to me so um, mysterious that a that an institution which is for the public good proclaims to be for the public good, yet enters into these um, relationships where they're actually promoting um, the public demise, public mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. I think it's over. I mean, gosh. You know more than I do. I just see over time like this calcification of that relationship mm-hmm. where yeah. it, it maybe it started fine and we didn't know as much about, yes. you know, soda. We didn't know about the relationships to public health. But over time, it becomes driven by profits and by power. And that relationship, which has been there for so long... Now it's come to a point where, like, I love the word calcification because now you have to chip away. It's <laughs> yeah. so much harder now yeah. than when it was soft and and kind of new. Yeah, um, and that and takes a, good way to put it. a lot of. Sadly, I think it takes a lot of bureaucracy. I think it takes not bureaucracy, but I think it takes a lot of like meetings. You know, meetings and the right people in the right place at the right time with the right public will behind them. Um, and University of California isn't it one of the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, it's uh, the biggest public university in the United States. Okay, yeah. I don't know about the world, but it's yeah, it's. I mean, 
and there's does many good things but yeah yeah so that's that to me is 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 you know to try to figure out how we can how we can um remake our food landscapes in ways that encourage people to do things that are good for everybody yeah i mean how do we create food landscapes where people uh are incentivized to to um produce and and eat food that is good for the environment good for you know everyone in the food chain all the workers mm-hmm. in the food chain mm-hmm. um good for our health how do you encourage that um and you know uh, you know one of the because of our 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 economic system which has developed especially in the last 40 years but has always it's always been a balance back and forth yeah. um it's very difficult um to do that because we've given so much control over our food landscapes to food corporations like yeah. Pepsi, like Coca-Cola, like um oh well, gosh, Monsanto, Monsanto yeah. like uh, uh Bayer, yeah, right. All these giant food companies, um McDonald's and so on that mm-hmm. um and and not only do they advertise um and you know in falsely and and like Coke and Pepsi are some of the most res- so-called respected brands in the world because they they have been they have been so successful in 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 um, putting forth uh, image of themselves as being wholesome yeah. and good and and it's it's like uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. It's yeah. Just, <laughs> it's well, just and amazing. think and I also think about Coca. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> The beginning, you just don't Why know do what you don't know. Why do we call it Coca-Cola? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And then it becomes so institutionalized that nobody's, wi- eh, you know, nobody's willing to fight yeah. back. And that's the problem. As you said, it becomes so calcified in yeah. terms of our economic system. It's like, it's like, well, how can we give up this revenue? I mean, even oh, though it's no. killing us, even though it's destroying the planet. And even though it revenue. won't actually destroy Coca-Cola, right? Yeah. It won't destroy Coca-Cola. It's a huge, massive, hugely conglomerated corporation. Yep. They're going to be fine. I mean, well, unfortunately. I, I, well, unfortunately, <laughs> but they, that doesn't mean that we have to have it in no, University no, of California, exactly, right? Exactly. And, and we've done a pretty good job in, in, in K-12 schools of getting yeah. junk food out. I mean, California's kind of led the way. And, yeah. and, and, you know, there are really encouraging signs of people beginning to take back, like Berkeley, the uh, city of Berkeley passed a healthy checkout uh, 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 rule recently where um, grocery stores have to maintain a minimum of healthy foods in the checkout aisle instead of just candy and junk oh, food. Oh, how interesting, yeah. You know, yeah. so I mean, I mean, it's things like that that show where, where people are actually saying, we're not going to put up with this. We're not going to put up with these corporations telling us what's good for us Mm -hmm. because what's good for the corporations is usually unfortunately not good for the people (laughs) what do you think about this is just devil's advocate because i'm with you i'm totally tracking (laughs) with you and and actually going back to tracking with you i want to just say that um in terms of that paper that you did and following up with the truth on greenhouse gas emissions and how local food actually is not that greenhouse gas emissions aren't really affected by how local food is. I really applaud that. And I, I, I am happy 
to see truth that's been well-researched, that's vetted, that's got, you know, the force of the University of California behind it, and all of your students. I assume it's a graduate-level class. It's graduate and undergraduate, but mostly undergrads. Well, just how, you know, we can get behind something like that and and look to other ways to localize food, for sure. But that being said, what do you say to people who believe that individual rights are key and that they they want their choices when they go through the checkout line? They want it to be the same because they can be responsible for themselves and make healthy decisions for themselves. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because what you're talking about is changing that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean that's a good point, and I think I think it's in, in, in a larger sense it's important to realize that we all only are able to function thanks to the actions of other people. No, no one is self-made. No one is is somehow isolated from the benefits of the rest of society. Right. We we can't exist um, as no organism can exist without the without the matrix of of living things on the planet Mm -hmm. and so i think that's a very it's a very deceptive uh, and dangerous idea to think that we as individuals somehow um uh have the right to determine what we what we want to do without concern for it's like anti-vaxxers it's like well i'm i'm not no one can tell me what to do wait a minute what you're doing affects everyone else we can tell you how fast you can go on the road you can't go 80 miles an hour through my neighborhood right Right. no and you can't you can't be a, a a police person or a fire person whose mandate is to protect the public and refuse to to get vaccinated because that's putting the public in danger. Mm-hmm. I mean it's just I mean that's that's a pers- you know that's a my perspective and it makes perfect sense to me but I can understand how as you say the opposite could make sense to people but I think um like in, don't don't you trust me government don't you trust me to yep. make my own decisions yep. I I don't know that those decisions have always been the best for everybody. Yeah and I think there's another key thing is people, as you said, they assume that what's happening, the default is kind of the normal or the best way. And mm-hmm. it's like people will complain, like one of the one of the um, objections that we've gotten like on campus to saying, well, we could, we should limit, you know, this healthy beverage initiative. We need to limit um, sugar sweetened beverages. And people say, well, I need to make it, I can have my choice. And I say, well, you know, there's a, it's, there's a difference between having the ability to make a choice and having a food landscape that where the choices are overwhelmingly determined by for-profit food corporations. So you can have Coke and Pepsi on campus even, or you can have sugar-sweetened beverages on a campus, for example, um, or you can have you know junk food in stores, but that's different than advertising and telling lies about it. Yeah, right. And so yes. make it available. People can choose it. But in the public interest, let's put out information the best is best it's understood by researchers um, of what is the best. Okay, well, here's what we know about nutrition. These these kinds of foods are good for you. These kinds of foods are bad for you. These kinds. Of, unfortunately, the foods that t- tend not 
all of them, but the overall general tendency is that for foods that are good for human human health are also good for environmental health mm. in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's very nice. What if it were the opposite? But it's not. The, mm -hmm. So so here's the information that is best we understand it now and no advertising. Yeah. And that would make a huge difference. And that, that would give people a larger choice. Now we, now we, I mean, you walk across campus, you walk down most, most commercial streets, and what you see is, you know, you see um, promotion for, or you look at social media of any kind, and you mm -hmm. see promotion for stuff that is not good for us yeah. in food. Yeah. And so how is that? Food-like substance. Yeah. yeah. How, how is that promoting freedom of choice? It's, it's the opposite of freedom of choice. And yet most people say, well, that you can't stop that because that's our, our right. So it's complicated. Oh, it's super, super complicated. When you were in Ghana <laughs> watching people farm with you know rudimentary tools and you were there for a year and a half, mm -hmm. did you ever picture yourself talking about Pepsi and Coke on multiple podcasts, it sounds like. Um, was that ever something that you foresaw or wanted to do? Uh, not specifically, but I, as I said, I really um, became, became really interested in this larger question of what, what is it that, that um, creates situations for people locally that puts them in a bind, mm -hmm. that, that, that puts them in a situation where... Um, they may realize that what they're doing is bad for them in the long run, but something that, that is the easiest thing to do in the short run, or what they have to do in the short run to just survive. Yes. And, yeah. and that somehow didn't seem right to me. <laughs> so yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I, I guess, I guess that's been my, my, um, my motivation. And that's what a lot of what we worked on um, with my wife, Daniela Soleri, in, in Mexico where she did her dissertation, where, where um, you know, with especially with 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 uh, these economic uh, regimes of neoliberalism and NAFTA and all that stuff, that it made it so hard for small scale farmers in Mexico to make a living. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, you know, again, these these people, some of these people, like in in, in West Africa, have been farming the same area for thousands of years and surviving and doing well and creating these um, amazing cuisines, for example, mm -hmm. in, in where, 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 where she was working in Oaxaca. I mean, Oaxacan food is like... The best. It's incredible. Yeah. And um, it's mostly, it's mostly plant-based food. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, yeah, and... Yeah, I mean, it's just like my mouth starts watering thinking, <laughs> thinking of, of Oaxacan yeah. food. But, but, but these farmers, you know, where are they? A lot of them are here mowing people's lawns in yeah. Santa Barbara. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, what the hell? Mm -hmm. And most of, these, most of the people that we know who are here, um, they don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. They would rather... Or maybe you know, I mean, it's it's kind of a kick to travel, maybe, and see, but but to abandon, to leave the, yeah, all their yeah. their their language, their culture, their food, mm -hmm. to leave that all. No, that's not something that they actively want. They were forced to do it. Mm -hmm. They were forced to do it by these larger um, uh, 
forces that that um, beyond their control. And so, yeah, I guess that's what I really um, what I've really been attracted to try to understand is how is how we can somehow take back control from those forces mm-hmm. in whatever small way or large way hopefully yeah. maybe right. um to to make it so that so that we can have good as you say abundant food um healthy food and everyone can have that how do we how do we do that mm-hmm. i don't know it's difficult it's really difficult like what is the opposite of the word pillage to yeah. pillage the yeah. verb what's the opposite of that there's something there, I, I'm not putting my finger on it, but I—that's what the goal would be. Yeah, um, Frances Morlape, you know, and her. I do. I, I actually know her. <laughs> I know her daughter. Yeah. Oh yeah, Anna. Yeah. Um, you know her book Diet for a Small Planet, which I think came out in '72. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was—I read that. I was influenced by that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but her thing, of course, is that we have plenty of food. It's the distribution that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I disagree with that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's plenty of food, but that food is is being produced and distributed and processed in a way that is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's yeah, there's plenty of food, but but if we actually were we're producing food in a way. That, for example, conserved fifty percent of the Earth's bio, uh, uh, natural areas. We're producing food in a way that wasn't driving climate change, that wasn't driving this pandemic of diseases. If we produce food in that way, would there still be enough food? And and I think one of the one of the issues here is overconsumption. As you know, we waste. Uh, about a third of the food or more that yeah. we produce, and you know every every pound of food that is wasted is also um, all the the nitrogen, all the all the soil that's washed away, all the the irrigation water that's used. Everything that was used to produce that third of the food that gets wasted is also wasted. And it has a negative impact. And, and it has and, a negative so, impact after I mean, it's wasted. Yeah. And so in the United States, irregardless of the food we waste, we consume more food than we need. We have an epidemic, as you know, sixty some 60% of people in the United States are overweight, 30% are obese. It's This is a huge change from what it was 100 years ago, for example. Mm-hmm. So all that, uh, this, this overconsumption and waste and overconsumption in the types of food we eat, for example, animal agriculture is hugely inefficient because, you know, obviously we're feeding food to animals and then we're eating the animals and we're losing a huge amount of resources in the process. Mm-hmm. We, we have to, I mean, most people, um, many uh, researchers, food researchers are saying now that we need to, in order to avoid catastrophic climate change, we need to reduce our consumption of animal foods and we need to reduce food waste. Um, And that doesn't mean that we're not going to have good food. It doesn't mean we're not going to have delicious food or we can have delicious food, even the Mm -hmm. people who don't have enough food today. um, By reducing the overconsumption in 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 some of the population we can make adequate consumption available for the rest of the population yeah. so i think i think 
I think the idea that Frankie Morlapay had, and which is still very much au courant in some in some among some groups, mm-hmm. I think is is oversimplified, mm-hmm. way oversimplified. Yeah. Once more, I want to give love to a couple other podcast friends. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Now hear this. Wine and Spirits magazine named their top 100 wineries of 2021, and the good people at Native Nine Wines in Santa Maria made the list. Not only are they among the top 100 wineries in the world— They are also one of 10 producers from the Central Coast on that list. So side note, go Central Coast, a tenth of the world's top producers. Native Nine produces Pinot Noir, only Pinot Noir, from organically farmed, minimally irrigated, hand-harvested vines that owner James Onaveros planted in 1997 when he was just in his early 20s studying crop science at Cal Poly University. James grows eight Pinot Noir clones on his Rancho Onaveros vineyard, and winemaker Justin Willett shepherds the wine to bottle with a distinct focus on whole cluster fermentation. If you've been looking for the right bottle to share at the holiday table or to gift to a loved one, look for the Native Nine link on the consumed website or visit ranchostayonaveros.com. I'm thinking about all the changes that have happened over the past 40 years, 50 years, uh, with the, the way that people eat. Yeah. It's, it feels at face value impossible to change people's meat eating habits. However, you look at campaigns against things like polyhydrogenated oils, margarine, look at how people treat margarine and butter now. Sure, margarine's got holdouts, you know, but most people are not using margarine anymore because they understand the impact on their health. They understand the impact of how it's made. Um, And then that got codified with, um, you know, putting on labels trans fat. Then you look at things, culturally speaking, like people did not eat sushi here. Yeah. Until the 80s. I hope I'm being fair about that. And I mean people who are not, you know, culturally Japanese. Eating sushi now, you can find it in your local Vons, Safeway, what have you. That shift happened. It was possible. I think that shifts do happen. It's a matter of, uh, I don't know, like how imminent is it? How urgent is it? And also, how is it impacting my life? How is it personal to me? Um, Anyway, I think that it is possible. Now, sushi and margarine are small compared to the California Beef Council. But but still, I do think that it's possible. Yeah, and when you look at the history of... Yeah, exactly like you say. When you look at the history of of, um, cuisines or diets, 
um, they do change. They, you know, they seem yeah. they seem they seem kind of stable, and then all of a sudden there's a big change. Yeah. And one of the big changes was the increase in meat consumption in Western countries, um, which people didn't eat that much meat because it was expensive. Because animals are very efficient ways to produce food, inefficient ways to produce food, and so people didn't eat much. But there was a huge, you know, huge campaign to increase meat consumption and. And so, and people's diets have changed dramatically. We eat a lot of of animal products now, but that wasn't. It's not like always been the case. Yeah. And so, you're right. It's it's um, we need to open ourselves up to the possibilities of change rather than the impossibilities mm-hmm. of change. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? That's the question. Well, and okay, <laughs> and so then also. I say this, I'm talking about me as a woman who had flank steak yesterday. So I, I, I am not high and mighty. I don't, uh, I don't begin to say that the way I'm living is up to the standard I'd, I'd like it to be. Um, I do believe in small changes. I think that small changes can also give a person confidence to make larger changes. But let me ask you if it's okay, how does this play out in the life of your home and your kitchen? Um, oh, we have a vegan household. And mm. um, I've been a vegetarian since I read Frankie Morley Pace's book. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> so in the 70s, uh, early 70s, I became a vegetarian. And then the last 15 years or so, segued into being vegan. And um, it just... You know, it feels right um, for mm-hmm. for many reasons. It's not just one reason. You know, it's animal. You know, I, I had some experiences on the farm, uh, and then as a teaching in Zambia uh, and advising the small farmers club, the students uh, small or the students young farmers club, and other experiences I've had that um, made me realize how much. Um, uh, mental life animals have, and how much they suffer under our under our uh, so-called management of them, mm. and um, which makes it, it just seems so bizarre to people talk about harvesting um, cattle or you know harvesting mm. pigs or something as if they were inanimate objects or plants or something. When these animals. Um, have this have similar feelings and emotions that humans have. I mean, this has been documented mm-hmm. um, by neuroscientists who look at brainwave patterns in chickens and so on. And they you see these these animals are actually in every every way we can tell. We can't talk to them. A chicken mm-hmm. can't tell us. But in every way we have of looking at their brain waves and looking at their behavior patterns, these pa- animals are feeling pain. Mm-hmm. And and so I just said, well, that's not that. I don't need to be part of that. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. And then when you look at the at the health aspects of the overconsumption of animal products, like with butter and eggs and all cholesterol and so on, when you look at the environmental impact of things, especially ruminant animals, and when you look at the social equity impacts that people who eat a lot of meat use so many more resources, water, et cetera, mm-hmm. nutrients, then that, that creates this huge 
um, inequity in our food system where some people are consuming many, many more times the resources because they eat so many animal products versus people who are barely getting by and eating almost no animal products. So for all those reasons, those four main reasons, I just, I just decided that, you know, this was the best way for me. And, you know, and of course I think it's probably the best way for everyone else because I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> well, you're not doing it for individual reasons, right? You're doing it because you yeah. see a reason yeah. greater I'm, than yourself, right? And and I mean, I think, yeah. Anyway, um, well, that might seem insignificant yeah. to you, but I do think I think there's power in people who really live the way they believe in it, and uh, also for you to be in academia and to bring that home with you is important. It feels really important to me. And I will say that my my children, who are 11 and 9, became vegetarians at the beginning of the pandemic, which I was like, seriously? (laughs) Right now? (laughs) But they did it for big reasons that you mentioned. And it has, I have honored their diets at home uh, as the cook, primary cook. And it's changing my... It's changing my Mm. understanding, Mm. Um, and it gives me a lot of hope. And I have lots of friends, given what I do. I have a lot of friends who ranch cattle, Um, and I I don't take issue with them. There's there's way more going on there than anyone could begin Mm -hmm. to chip away at. But for at like as for me in my house, my husband aside, we are. It's beginning. Something's shifting in our home. And it's led by my, you know, school-age children, which Mm. is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And the fact that they are educated to understand that in ways that maybe I couldn't quite understand is really hopeful for me, Mm. um, that they're applying what they learn in their own lives. And one of the only things that they can control, really, is the way that they eat. You know, as they get older, they'll have more privilege and more autonomy. But that's one way where they're like, I'm not eating that. Hmm. It's pretty cool. So, so do they articulate their reasons? Yes. Huh. That's really. <laughs> it is, and it's not coming from me, and it's not coming from my husband. It's coming from their schools, which also goes to show what you're saying about institutionalizing, understanding, mm-hmm. and making things broad, where it's not just about what's taught in the home. It's about what's taught in the greater, like in a you know a public space. Mm-hmm. It matters. It makes yeah. a difference. Yeah, and yeah, it does make a difference. I, yeah, the, I think one of the problems, especially with um, with diets, of course, is that is that they're very personal. Oftentimes, to people, you know, the reason that people choose food is a big reason is habit, and you know what mm-hmm. they what their families ate, what their communities ate, and and what they grew up eating um, is so personal that it's. Um, it's important to honor that those feelings too when you're talking yeah. about diets, and I yes. think that's one of the problems with um, food system change. Is oftentimes um, people get uh, who who see the need for change become um, what others would, from the outside, would see as being self righteous. <laughs> yes, know? I know. Even as and, I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, oh, the people that will hear this. Yeah, just... I know. They'll think, oh, Cleveland, yeah. he's so self righteous. No, 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 not about not... you, about me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, care well, what but... they think about you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, you know, you need to honor that and and talk to people about about 
things that they do care about and and how they're what they're eating affects that i mean they may not feel that that um that health is that important that that's not a big issue people just eat yeah. and whatever they eat they'll be healthy but they do care about um uh biodiversity they care about um um, water supplies or something so you can you yeah. know i think there are many entryways and and uh yeah i think it's important to keep in mind that everything is relative yes <laughs> i mean you know the earth at one point uh won't exist anymore the United States won't exist anymore. None of us will exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And so what really matters, what really matters to me is is what we do every day in our lives mm -hmm. because that's the only way we can create meaning. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have to do what, what feels right for us because mm -hmm. what else can we do? And not feels right like in this moment, like, you know. Right. Like, yeah. oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat what I ate yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> but what yeah. feels right in a you know perspective, right? Sort of exactly. Way. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. You said it better than than I did. Where we can um, walk away from every meal and feel like, oh, I cared for myself. I cared for those around me. I cared for what's bigger. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. I'm, oh, go ahead, go please. Ahead. No, I mean that's what that's what um, that's what I think needs to be. I think it can make our food experiences richer when we mm -hmm. when we think like that, and that's what bugs me about about some of these you know food programs or food or cookbooks that people are just totally totally focused on the immediate um, you know culinary you know the gastronomic experience, the aesthetics mm -hmm. of the presentation or the taste or but absolutely not a whisper about the context that makes that possible yeah and to me that that's that's um irresponsible food um go ahead say it yeah journalism You're, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well and and that's very um that makes me think a lot about my role in mm -hmm. in all of that for sure. And I think you're right. I think it is important. I think, and I hope that it becomes more of a normal, you know, more normative to think about that. That's addition. what you started off saying is how you, how you have come to, to appreciate yeah. that larger um, perspective. Mm -hmm. and, in every way. Yeah. And so, yeah. so, you know, hopefully people who listen to your podcast can be inspired to think more broadly as well. Yes, I hope so. Um, you mentioned that people have, uh, you know, they think about the foods that they grew up with. They have a lot of nostalgia, you know, for, and that becomes normative for them. Um, and I'm curious, how long did you say you've been vegetarian since? Oh my gosh. So probably, uh, almost 50 years now. Okay. But not in your childhood. No, no, no. We had standard. I mean, yeah, I mean, one of my memories is from uh, is my from my uncle on the farm. Uh, um, I think two or three times uh, he would go and get his rifle and walk down across the road to where the pig pen was, and you would hear the pigs when he started. A, it would squeal this high pitched mm -hmm. squeals of terror as he. They knew what was coming, and he would kill one of the pigs, shoot one of the pigs, and then it would be quiet. Oh, You'd hear the gun gosh. 
go off and then it would be silent. And then I remember my grandma, I remember this large pig on the dining room table and my grandmother cleaning it mm-hmm. and processing it and God, David, that's not the direction I thought this was going to go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so uh, why are we talking about this? Because <laughs> the last question I ask everybody on the podcast <laughs> is what, you know, if you were going to celebrate your life and you wanted to have one last meal, who oh my would, God. Who would last be there? Supper. <laughs> well, who would be there and what would you drink and what would you eat? And I'm curious, so many people go nostalgic on this question. Mm-hmm. And I wonder for you, would it be something, <clears throat> even in your last day, would it be something that was nostalgic way back, or would mm. it be something that you know represents the the culmination of your life more? Yeah, I think it would be. I mean, I don't have much much. I do have nostalgia for going um, picking um, fresh uh, tomatoes from the garden, or going up in the. Uh, the edge of the woods and picking blackberries and and that kind of, that's that was wonderful but but for the main you know the main kind of middle america and diet um i don't have much nostalgia for that All right, I mean, we, we didn't have much money when i was younger and my my mother would make things like um um hot dogs you would slit hot dogs and put mashed potatoes inside them oh my god <laughs> What is that? Yeah, I don't have any nostalgia for that. <laughs> later, later she she got into Chinese food and cooking, and it got a lot better. But oh, cool. But um, you know, Jello salads. Yeah. I think yeah. So. Anyway, but I, you know, I just think of all the places that I've been uh, in the world, and all the wonderful. Every place has wonderful foods. Wonderful, not only in the sense of their taste and their appearance, but wonderful in the sense of the communities that generate them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked in Pakistan, um, you know, people would share food and, you know, it just comes from these, you know, comes from what they grew. And mm-hmm. uh, in, in Syria, I remember um, these meals where, where people would all be sitting, you know, on the floor in a big big uh, blanket with fist food dishes all around everyone sharing the dishes and mm-hmm. and it was just you know just that that's that those are the kind of meals that i would want to really you know to you know to somehow capture again as yeah. the is the the food and the community the the um the um hospitality and the the sharing um the, the sharing most people that I've uh, experienced in you know whether it's you know China Syria Mali Pakistan Mexico most people who are you know living especially in the country you know f- growing some of their food they want to share it mm-hmm. even when they don't hardly have any food of their own mm-hmm. they it's part of I think the better side of human nature to want to share food because food is something that we all need and it's something that um, is richer and more nourishing when we share it. It's more nourishing to our to our souls when yeah. we share it. And yeah, I think, the deepest. Part. Yeah, that's the deepest. So that that's the kind of uh, last meal I would like to have. I love it. I think that's wonderful. 
Um, and, and as you mentioned, when somebody grows their own, sharing becomes much more oh critical. Oh, yes. It becomes much more of a gift than if I were to, you know, make a jello salad and <laughs> share it, you know, if I didn't yeah. have anything to do with the ground up creation of it. Yeah. 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 Well, I thank you so much for welcoming me into your research and into your home and, and just a little peek into your life and the way that what you've learned has affected the way you live. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jamie. I enjoyed the interview. That's it for another episode of the Consumed Podcast. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. To learn more about any of the guests you hear on the podcast, visit letsgetconsumed.com. You can also sign up there for the Consumed newsletter, where I share recipes, side stories, and more. Until next time, thank you for getting consumed together with me.